John Bunyan, who is the author of the classic Pilgrim's Progress, which is the greatest book that has ever been written in the English language, also wrote another great work that's not nearly as well known. It's called The Holy War. Like Pilgrim's Progress, The Holy War is an allegory. That is, it communicates biblical truth in very colorful story fashion. Many English scholars believe that the Holy War is the second greatest allegory that has ever been written after Pilgrim's Progress. The full title of the Holy War tells you its theme, what Bunyan writes about. It's called The Holy War Made by King Shaddai Upon Diabolus to Regain the Metropolis of the World or The Losing and Taking Again of the Town of Mansoul. Well, you can hear, if you're familiar with the Bible, just in that lengthy title, what Bunyan is seeking to communicate in this allegorical story. He tells about the devil, Diabolus by name in the book, who overthrows the town of Mansoul. He does it by successfully tempting the citizens to rebel against King Shaddai, their God and creator. And the result is the ruin of Mansoul and the beginning of of the reign of wickedness and death in that town. But King Shaddai is full of love and grace, and so he sends his son Emmanuel on a mission to recapture the town. And at great cost, and with almighty power, Emmanuel is successful. And once enthroned, Mansoul is actually in a far better state than it was before Diabolos overthrew it because of Emmanuel's successful conquest. He caused caused sin and death to be defeated. And Emmanuel, enthroned in Mansoul, caused caused the reign of grace forevermore. Now, this book is an accurate depiction of God's way of salvation. Through the work of his son, Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, God has successfully worked to secure the eternal salvation for his people. Jesus' life of obedience earned righteousness for those who have no righteousness to offer to God in and of ourselves. And then his death on the cross provides atonement for our sins. Atonement that we ourselves cannot afford to pay, for it would cost us eternity under God's wrath. This salvation that Jesus accomplished has been accomplished completely by God's grace. And it is provided to sinners completely by God's grace. Therefore, the only way to receive it is by faith. By taking God at his word and by bowing to Jesus Christ as Lord. Paul writes the book of Romans in the New Testament in order to explain this good news of salvation. Specifically in this book, he shows how God's grace works in the good news of the gospel. We've been looking at Romans now for some time, and our text this morning is found at the very end of Romans chapter 5. And in these last two verses, we see Paul almost breaking out in a doxology as he summarizes again the themes that he has been addressing in this whole fifth chapter. He shows us how free salvation is by praising the sovereign, 
reigning grace of God in salvation. God is willing to save anyone and everyone. And He's willing to assure anyone and everyone who calls Jesus Lord and receives that salvation that having begun that good work in us by grace, He will infallibly bring it to conclusion by that same grace. So hear the word of the Lord as I read from Romans chapter 5. I want to start in verse 12 and read all the way down through verse 21 because verses 20 and 21 are kind of the capstone of this whole section. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, it's found on page 942. I do encourage you to get a copy of God's word in front of you because we're just simply going to look at the actual words that God's spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write in this letter for the church at Rome in the first century, and for the church here in Cape Coral in the 21st century. So hear the word of the Lord, beginning in Romans chapter 5, in verse 12. The apostle writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following the one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And then our text for this morning, verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God's way of salvation results in the reign of superabundant grace. That's what these last two verses are teaching us as Paul reflects upon what he has just written about the comparison and contrast between Adam, the first man, with Jesus Christ, who is the last Adam, or as 1 Corinthians 15 calls him, the second man. In verses 12 through 19, Paul has examined all of history, considered all of human history as hanging on these two men, Adam and Christ, as he teaches us that God considered Adam not simply to be a private man, And he didn't consider Jesus Christ to be simply a private man, but he made both of them to be covenantal heads, representatives of their own people. So God made Adam the covenant head of the whole human race. He created him, placed him in the Garden of Eden, and he gave him the responsibility to obey his creator completely with the warning, the threat that if he disobeyed, 
he would bring death to himself and all those he was representing. The implication being that if he lived in obedience, he would be confirmed in that life and righteousness in which God had created him. And so when Adam failed that mission, he plunged not only himself into sin and death, but by that first sin, he plunged the whole human race into sin and death. But God determined to send his own son, Jesus Christ, in the world to be the covenant or federal head of his people, the people whom God had chosen out of the world to be his special possession. Jesus came to represent them before God. He also had a responsibility. It also was the responsibility to obey God completely and to suffer the punishment due to the people of God's sin. Jesus successfully completed this mission. And in doing so, he accomplished salvation for anyone and everyone who would ever trust him as Lord. That is because, that is because of Jesus' life and death, God justifies sinners. And he does it by grace. He does it not through anything that we do or provide, but as we, through faith, accept what he provides. As we have seen, Paul elaborates this in verses 12 through 19. But then in verses 20 and 21, he concludes this part of his explanation by highlighting the reign of God's grace. Or we might call it the sovereignty of grace. Paul does this by making three points in these two verses. I want to point them out to you, and we're just going to work our way through them. We see in the first part of verse 20, He teaches us that law increases sin. And then in the last part of verse 20, grace abounds over sin. And then verse 21 just establishes the whole point that grace reigns. Grace reigns. Well, let's see in verse 20 how the law increases sin. Paul had previously mentioned the law of God and Moses as the one who received that law in verses 13 and 14. He did this because he's writing to a church that's comprised of both Jews and Gentiles, and the law was very important to the Jewish people. It was commonly thought by the Jews that the way of salvation, the way to attain righteousness before God, was through keeping the law. Paul himself believed this before Jesus Christ revealed to him God's way of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. We see Paul in chapters 2 and 3 specifically going after this error that you cannot be made right with God through any of your efforts to keep the law. And so he summarizes it in chapter 3, verse 20, where he writes, By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, that is, in God's sight. The law of God could not prevent sin. It was revealed to Moses and the people of Israel long after sin had come into the world. So it's too late to prevent sin. Nor can the law of God overcome sin. Because, as we will see later in this letter to the church at Rome, it is too weak because of our human sinfulness to put sin to death. So then what's the purpose of the law? What purpose does God intend for it to serve? Well, Paul says in verse 20, it came in, came in, or came along with, came in beside. In other words, it came in between Adam and Christ, the the first man 
and the second man. Paul specifically is referring to the law that was given to Moses at Mount Sinai as we heard portions of it read to us by Brother Don earlier in this service. He says that that law came in to increase the trespass. Now he's telling us a purpose for which God gave the law. It's not the only purpose because he will explain other purposes elsewhere. But it is the purpose that he wants to highlight for his argument of showing the superiority, indeed the sovereignty of God's grace to overcome sin and to not be withstood by sin. Paul is not saying that the law creates or multiplies sin. He's not suggesting that the law is the origin of sin. Rather, he's saying that the law manifests sin as sin. It magnifies it. It makes it evident where otherwise it is not evident. We'll see Paul elaborate this very point in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 14. But in one sense, what we learn is that the law is like a magnifying glass. You know, if you ever looked at a bug under a magnifying glass, you see details of that bug that you just can't see with the naked eye. Well, in a similar way, the law that makes sin that already exists become apparent. That's the way that the law increases sin. In another sense, the law is like a mirror in that it shows us what is really there. Just as a a mirror will show you the dirt or the food that's left on your face. Children, have you ever had your parents say, go look at the mirror and they're kind of smiling at you, maybe have a little twinkle in in their eye. They want you to go see something you don't see. And, And when you go and you look in the mirror, what do you see? Well, you see, there's that ice cream I didn't quite get in my mouth, right? There's just a little bit there. You can see it. Well, once you see it, what do you do? You don't take the mirror down and try to wash your face with the mirror, do you? No, because the mirror is not designed to wash. The mirror is designed to reflect, to expose in the same way. The law is designed by God to help us understand sin, to see sin where we're not aware of it. But the law has no power to cleanse us from sin. It can't remove it. But that was never its purpose. That's not why God gave it. You know, this whole purpose of the law that Paul's highlighting here is one of the reasons that we and other churches recognize the importance of preaching the law of God. It's not to save anybody. Nobody can be saved by keeping the law. But rather, it's so that we might come face to face with our sin. That we might see sin for what it really is. The reason that so many people don't care about their souls today. They don't have any regard for God today. They have no fear for him. They're not interested then in the good news of salvation. The good news of God's grace. Is because they've never come face to face with their sin. And what would be beneficial For everyone in that condition is to have God's law set before them to have them read with humility and belief what the Bible says is God's righteous standard and to measure their lives by it. Sin is not increased in their thinking because they've never been awakened to the reality of their own sin. That is, 
They've never seen it. Not in its proper light. The 19th century American writer and philosopher Henry David Thoreau was asked on his deathbed, have you made your peace with God? And Thoreau, with his atheistic convictions, said, I didn't know we had quarreled. Well, of course he didn't. Because he had never seen himself in the light of, in the reflection of, God's law. He had never considered what he really was in the light of what God calls him to be. I fear that that is true for many in our day. Could be true of people in the room today. That sin is really not that important to you. You don't really think about it. You don't care about it. You're not concerned about your sin. You don't think about God much. And when you do, it's not with reverence. It's not with fear that you're in his hands and one day you'll stand to give an account before him. And the reason is because you have never been honest enough to measure your life by the decrees that God has revealed and given to us in his holy law. And friend, I would plead with you today to simply be humble enough to go back to those Ten Commandments in Exodus 12 that were read earlier and read through them carefully. If you dare, prayerfully. And ask God to show you the truth. And then read through Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 and see how he unpacks and elaborates God's law. And measure yourself. Look in that mirror. Look at that magnifying glass as it examines your life and see your sin. And believe what God says about your sin. Because when you see your sin, you will then be aware of your need of the Savior. And God sent His Son, the Lord Jesus, into the world to be the Savior of sinners. But no one will ever seek Christ, desire Christ, trust Christ, without first being convinced that he or she is a sinner. This is why so many people play around with sin. It's why people laugh at the gospel. Ignore what God says about Jesus. It's because they don't believe what God has said. Because they don't know what God has said. About his standard of righteousness. That defines, exposes, and causes sin to increase. Well, after Paul tells us that the law increases sin, he next says in the last part of verse 20 that grace abounds over sin. So, yes, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The increase of sin cannot, does not overcome God's grace. Though sin permeates all of creation like poison that is poured into a fountain from the ground that results in all of the streams that are fed by that fountain being poisoned, so does sin poison this whole world. Though sin permeates and even dominates a person's life, making him the chief of sinners, it can neither exceed nor withstand 
God's grace. On the contrary, Paul says, grace abounds all the more, all the more over increased sin. That is, grace overcomes sin. The more clearly we see sin and it increases to us, the more clearly we will see the sovereign power of God's grace and be overwhelmed that God has such grace for sinners. Grace abounded all the more. That's what Paul says. And and that's really one word in the original language he wrote in. And it's a fascinating word. Paul takes as the root a, a word that is already a superlative word. You know what superlative is, right? You've got good, better, and best. So better is comparative. And somebody says, well, that's better. You know, always in your mind, you have compared to what? Because it's better than something. It's comparative. But superlative best, well, that's at the top. What Paul does is he takes a superlative word and he adds a prefix to it that intensifies it even more. So it's not just more better. It's more best, you know, or Super best, or what we would say here, super abounded, or abounded all the more. Here's Paul's point. God's grace is greater than our sin. His grace is not hindered or defeated by our sin. This is seen throughout Scripture. When Adam sinned in the garden, according as to Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 7, where the record is, immediately sin began to abound. But God's grace abounded all the more when we read in Genesis 3, 15, that out of his free grace, God promised a Savior who would come and destroy the devil and defeat sin and rescue his people forever. And as the New Testament teaches, What Adam lost through rebellion, Jesus more than restored through his life of obedience to God. As sin spread throughout the human race, we read in the Old Testament, we see human wickedness and perversity breaking out in breathtaking displays. But we also see God's grace being manifested manifested throughout history in super abounding ways. Do you know the story of King Manasseh in the Old Testament? It's a king of Judah, the most wicked king in Judah's history. The scripture tells us that he even offered up his sons as a sacrifice in fire, had them burned to death to pagan gods. He was certainly an example of sin increasing. But God's grace abounded even more when the Lord humbled Manasseh. And had the king of Syria come and take him captive and conquer him and lead him away to Babylon in shackles and with a hook through his nose as if he were an animal. Second Chronicles 33 tells us Manasseh was humbled by God, bowed and cried out to the Lord of heaven. And God, out of pity and love, showered grace upon him forgave him, restored him back to Jerusalem. Yes, sin increased, but grace abounded all the more. Be assured of this. You cannot out God's grace. God's grace, as we have sung this morning, is greater than all our sin. 
Are you grieved over your, over your sin? Does your sin frighten you? Are you concerned about how deeply rooted sin remains in your life? Have you sinned in some great way? Have you given yourself over to sexual immorality? Have you stolen from your employer? Is your conscience convicting you even this morning as you sit here of some dark, deep, sinful secret in your life? Or maybe you've just grown hardened by your sin over a lifetime of giving yourself over to it. Have you repeatedly rejected the gospel? Sneered at it? Laughed at it? Been bored by it? Thinking the message of forgiveness and salvation is not really for you? Have you gone deeper into sin than anybody could possibly know? If so, hear me. I've got good news for you. God's grace is greater than your sin. Your sin cannot thwart His grace. He has grace to overcome what you might think to be unconquerable in your own sin. He has grace for all who bow to Him through faith in Jesus Christ. So look to Christ. Confess your sin to Christ. He is full of pity and mercy. He came into the world for sinners like you and me. Brothers and sisters, as we've confessed our sin this morning, so we should always do before our God. Because where sin increased, grace abounds all the more. So trust Christ. Believe Christ. Throw yourself at the mercy and grace of God in Jesus Christ. Yes, the law increases sin, but grace abounds over sin. Finally, in verse 21, we see the third point. Grace reigns. Look at the way Paul puts it. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The reason that God has worked in this way is so that grace might reign. Do you see those first two words in verse 21? They signal to us that Paul's about to give us the reason that God has done it and has done it this way. They explain the purpose that God revealed the law in the way that increases sin and magnifies his grace in the wake of increased sin. Simply stated, God's purpose in saving sinners the way he does is so that grace might reign, so that it might be shown to be enthroned, so that it might be seen to be sovereign, more powerful than sin and death and hell. Paul says, again, sin reigned in death. That's what happened when Adam ate the forbidden fruit. Sin came into the world. And it began to set upon the throne of this world because of Adam's disobedience. Death was the inevitable consequence of sin because sin leads to separation from God, which is spiritual death. Paul has made this point repeatedly in verses 12 through 19. We, says, we see specifically in verse 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses. He repeats it in verse 17. Because of one man's trespass, 
death reigned through that one man. The reign of sin is self-evident in this world if we will simply have eyes to recognize the way the Bible helps us to see it. We can observe it throughout history with the rise and fall of empires, the outbreaks of great evil, and the death of even great people. We can see it even in our own lives and relationships. And we must acknowledge that the continual presence of sin in our hearts and minds at times can feel like death is stalking us and gaining on us with every changing season. Paul says that just as that is true, just as sin reigned in death, God has provided salvation in a way that he also makes it clear that grace might reign. Grace also might reign. How does grace reign? Paul says through righteousness. Through righteousness. The provision of righteousness that comes to believers from God as a result of the obedient life and death of Jesus. Just as Paul wrote in verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. When God constitutes sinners righteous by justifying them by his grace, his sovereign reigning grace, he is putting on display exactly what he intended by the way of salvation, that grace conquers, grace justifies, grace renews, it transforms, it reigns. And reigning grace leads, as he says, to eternal life. It restores what Adam lost. It establishes all who receive it in an eternal relationship with their God. And reigning grace does this only in one place. In Jesus Christ our Lord. It is found in the one whom God sent to recapture man's soul. To bring us back in alignment with our creator through reconciliation. It's by his obedient life, his sacrificial death. That grace is established as sovereign over sin. Now this was made abundantly evident. Undeniably evident. In the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. As the representative of his people. Our covenant head. Jesus kept God's commandments completely. Earning righteousness. His obedience continued even to death. Even the death of the cross. Whereby he justified God's wrath. Against our sin. And when Jesus breathed his last and was taken from the cross and laid in Joseph's tomb, it looked like death had won. It looked like sin and death were reigning, were still enthroned over the world. But on the third day, Jesus emptied that borrowed tomb. He rose victorious over sin and death. And he demonstrated once and for all eternity that sin and death are not sovereign. Grace is sovereign. God gets the final word. God makes the last judgment. That's why Paul can say what he does in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 54. Oh, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? He mocks. Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
Brothers and sisters, as you trust Jesus Christ, you can be sure of this. Sin does not reign. It cannot conquer the work of God's grace in your life. Death will not defeat you. And Though we may all taste of death in this life, we do so as those who live by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who conquered death. If you need grace, it's found in Jesus Christ. Do you desire for God to be full of grace toward you and how he deals with you? Then trust in Jesus Christ. The grace that saves, the grace that reigns is found nowhere else but Christ. So trust him. Brothers and sisters, it is through faith in Jesus Christ that God has saved us and rescued us and reconciled us to himself. So never think that your sin is too grace. Too great. His grace is greater than your sin. His grace reigns through Christ. Keep trusting Him for grace. Count on Him to deal with you, not on the basis of your performance, but on the basis of His grace that is established forever in Christ. So look to Christ. Keep trusting Christ. Never doubt Christ. Work to remember Jesus Christ. God's way of salvation results in the reign of superabundant grace. What great encouragement this is for people who know themselves to be sinners. God's a God of grace. So let no one despair that God should ever refuse to be gracious to any sinner. The salvation that he provides is not dependent upon what kind of sinner you are. The salvation that he provides is all of grace, super abundant grace, reigning grace, sovereign grace. Do you sometimes feel the depths and the seriousness of your sin? Then let yourself feel the depths and the seriousness of God's grace in Christ. Are your sins always before you? Then let God's grace for sinners in Christ also Always be before you. Believe as strongly in God's sovereign grace as you do your own sin. Everyone here is a candidate to become a trophy of God's grace. And I would plead with each one of you to not walk out the doors today until you look to this God of grace who gave up his son for sinners like you and me and plead with him. To shower you with saving grace. Turn from your sin. Call Jesus Christ your Lord. And resolve to live for him as you live in grace. John Andre was a British major in the American Revolution War. He's famous because he was a spy for Britain. The spy who turned Benedict Arnold into a traitor. And in 1780, he was on his way to meet Benedict Arnold when he was accosted by three vagabonds, really. And as they robbed him and stripped him, they found papers that exposed he was a spy. And so they handed him over to General Washington. There was a quick military trial. He was found guilty of spying and sentenced to death to hang. After his death, his military jacket was found and they went through it and discovered a hymn 
that was composed by an 18th century Welsh pastor called Jehoiada Brewster. Two days before his death, Major Andre had written from memory the words, the lyrics of this hymn. It was an expression of his final hope as a man who was condemned to die. And that hymn testifies that the hope of such a man should and could only be in the sovereign grace of God. Listen to that hymn this dying man wrote down. Hail sovereign love which first began the scheme to rescue fallen man. Hail matchless free eternal grace that gave my soul a hiding place. Against the God who built the sky I fought with hands uplifted high. Despised the mention of his grace, too proud to seek a hiding place. Enwrapped in thick Egyptian night and fond of darkness more than light, madly I ran the sinful race, secure without a hiding place. But thus the eternal counsel ran, Almighty love, arrest that man. I felt the arrows of distress and found I had no hiding place. Indignant justice stood in view. To Sinai's fiery mount I flew. But justice cried with frowning face, This mountain is no hiding place. Ere long a heavenly voice I heard, And mercy's angel soon appeared. He led me with a placid pace To Jesus as a hiding place. On him almighty vengeance fell, Which must have sunk a world to hell. He bore it for a sinful race, And thus became their hiding place. Should sevenfold storms of thunder roll and shake this globe from pole to pole, no thunderbolt shall daunt my face, for Jesus is my hiding place. A few more setting suns at most shall land me on a fair Canaan's coast, where I shall sing the song of grace and see my glorious hiding place. God's grace is greater than your sin. So trust him. For his grace. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you are the God of grace. We thank you that where sin increased, so grace has abounded all the more. Help us to take you at your word this morning. I pray for those this morning that are struggling with their sin. They've tried to manage their sin. Oh God, would you not come and convince them of the folly of such a way of living and grant them genuine repentance and faith that they might look to Christ who came into this world in order to save sinners by grace. Help us who know you who know this grace, to live as people of grace, to commend your grace, to encourage others to come to you, knowing that your grace is sovereign. It reigns, and it can reach to the deepest depths to save even the chief of sinners. Hear our prayers for Jesus' sake. Amen.